Hello, and welcome to Something Shakespeare This Way Comes. This episode, we are talking about Baz Luhrmann's absolute fever dream, which is the 1996 Romeo plus Juliet. Uh, And actually, I feel like I'm remiss if I don't give it the actual full title, which is William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, which is apparently extremely important. I did actually read a 20 plus page scholarly article uh, dissecting the title of the movie because academics are apparently all completely bananas. My guest this episode is Amanda Bain Waisaki, who brought me this claiming that it was actually one of her top maybe 10 or five. I can't remember if it was actually in the top five. It's it's in my letterboxed four. Okay. <laughs> so way up there on the list. And I feel like it is kismet. Amanda is the biggest movie buff that I know and volunteered to come on my dumb little show that like 12 people listen to and I am absolutely thrilled so thank you so much for being here it is a delightful show just so you know I've listened to every episode (laughs) oh my gosh thank you so much you and my mom are my two completists (laughs) so I found it very convenient that one of your favorite movies of all time happens to be a Shakespeare adaptation And so I kind of wanted to actually just start asking you kind of what your relationship, what your history with this movie is, and if this stems from you being a fan of Romeo and Juliet, being a fan of Shakespeare, being a fan of Baz Luhrmann, or if this is like just kind of all wild coincidence. So I love Shakespeare adaptations. Um, If you ask me to just like pin down my favorite highly specific genres one of them would be modern day adaptations of classic texts anything I'm, I'm gonna go nuts for it I'm gonna love it I actually when I was in middle school I took a class at a summer camp that was all focused on film adaptations of Shakespeare texts and so that's really kind of where I started to fall in love with seeing how these classic plays could be redone in so many different ways. Um, And that was where I saw this movie for the first time. I hated the movie the first time I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was weird. I hated how they were talking in the classic language, but it was a modern setting. It was all just, it did not work for 14-year-old Amanda. And then I saw it again. What a fool she was. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. She didn't know. She didn't know what she was missing. And so then I saw it again when I was a freshman in high school and we watched it because, you know, everybody watched it when they read uh, the play in their English class. And I really wish I still had my notebook from that English class because I remember we had a writing assignment where we had to do a movie review of it and the only thing I remember is using the phrase Vatican gift shop on crack to describe <laughs> the, like the setting and I still maintain that that was a pretty good description I just now kind of like it and then I just revisited it as an adult and I was like, oh no, like I love all of the like weird anachronisms, the the clash of the original language with the modern setting. It all just worked for me as an adult. 
Um, so that's kind of my travels toward loving this movie. Okay. <laughs> and are you are you a Baz Luhrmann fan in general as well? Or he is a director that I am always excited when he has a new movie out. Which I mean, he's only made like six movies in thirty years, so it's it's not like I'm always like waiting anxiously because it's going to be a while for any of them to appear. But I really respect the big swings that he takes. And so if nothing else, I know I'm going to have feelings about his movies. <laughs> yes. I myself, my my gateway drug was Moulin Rouge, which kind of hit us at about the right age. And I think when I got a little older, allowed me to come back to Romeo plus Juliet and be like, I... I feel like I get this now. Yes. <laughs> I was kind of the same way. And actually, even just watching it for this episode, I had fond memories of this movie. But when I actually decided to think critically about it for the first time, instead of just being like, haha, Baz Luhrmann go burr, you know, um, <laughs> there's kind of a lot going on here. So that's exciting, too. It is. A lot more than I expected. Uh, like, I was surprised there was scholarly articles about it. So that was kind of exciting. Before we start talking about the movie in more detail, I just want to give a really quick rundown of the plot of Romeo and Juliet. I think this is actually one that people don't need as much of an intro on because, as you said, everyone Everyone that I know had to read it in high school. I'm sure there are people who did not experience that. But just to, to give you a very brief overview of what is going on in Romeo and Juliet, our basic setup is you have the Capulets and the Montagues are in a blood feud. The Montagues' only son is Romeo. The Capulets' only daughter is Juliet. They are, of course, the star-crossed lovers. <laughs> Surrounding them, you have a whole bunch of their kind of families who are all fighting each other. So at the very beginning of the play, there's a big fight. And the prince uh, in this movie, who's like the chief of police of Verona Beach, basically, tells them that if they, they keep <laughs> effing up Verona, and if they do it again, then they're all going to, you know, get killed he's gonna put him to death so very high stakes <laughs> to, to set everything off um romeo is moping around because he is in love with Rosalind. we never get to meet her all of his friends and his family seem to be uh pretty unimpressed by this but he's pining his friends finally convince him to go to this sneak into this party that the capulets are throwing and there, that that's where he sees Juliet for the first time. And he basically immediately forgets that Rosaline ever even existed, immediately falls in love with Juliet, and we kick things off at a run. Uh, after they meet at the party for the first time, we get the famous balcony scene where the two of them exchange all their stuff, a bunch of famous lines. Um, and because this is a play and also, I guess, the 1500s, they have to get married because you can't do all of the stuff we can do in the modern day. So they decide to get married the next day. They get married the next day and then everything goes okay for about 60 minutes. <laughs> but Juliet's cousin, Tybalt, had seen Romeo at the party. He's really pissed off, wants to challenge Romeo to a duel. Romeo 
does not want to fight in the duel because Tybalt is now his cousin-in-law, I guess. His friend Mercutio gets super mad about this because, you know, his honor. He has to live up to this. Mercutio fights Tybalt instead. Mercutio is killed. Romeo gets really pissed. So he kills Tybalt. And then the prince comes back. And he, instead of having Romeo put to death, um, because he was kind of avenging his friend, he gets banished. So before he gets banished, he does manage to sneak and see Juliet one more time. They have sex. He runs off. And Juliet's family, for some absolutely demented reason, decides, you know what the best way to cure grief is, is to immediately marry you off to this other dude. You're going to marry Paris in like two days, which she obviously doesn't want to do. So Friar Lawrence, um, who's kind of the local, I don't know, priest slash monk slash whatever he is, comes up with this really weird plot to have Juliet drink this potion that's going to make her appear like she's dead. Her whole family is going to think she's dead. They're going to stick her in this tomb. And then Friar Lawrence is going to send a note to Romeo to come back when she wakes up in the tomb. Romeo will be there and then he'll speared her away to Mantua, which is where he's been exiled, and they can live happily ever after. Except that the postal service in the 1500s wasn't very good, (laughs) and the note never gets to Romeo. He hears that Juliet's died and doesn't know it's all a ruse, so he goes back with the intent of killing himself because he thinks Juliet is dead. He shows up at her tomb. He finds Paris there, who's all sad, kills him, in the, I actually was just rereading the play. One of my favorite details is he kills Paris. And then he's like, hmm, maybe I should drag this guy into the light. And then he's like, oh, no, it's Paris. <laughs> and then the detail that I had not remembered whatsoever is he's like, oh, no, it's Paris. Mercutio's cousin. I was like, Paris and Mercutio are real. What? They, their family is not <laughs> having a good week. <laughs> just these two bystanders. So oh gosh, that also means Harold Perrineau is Paul Rudd's cousin. <laughs> yes, which is a really interesting family relationship there. So, yes, Romeo kills Paris. Then he goes down there. He finds Juliet. He drinks the poison. He kills himself. Juliet wakes up and is like, uh-oh. Friar Lawrence actually in the play, not in the movie. So in the movie, I should say the whole... The Paris thing, all this stuff gets excised. Romeo walks in. He drinks the poison. In the movie, Juliet wakes up as he's drinking the poison. They kind of get to say their farewells, and then she kills herself, and then it ends. In the play, you have (laughs) the Paris fight scene. You have Friar Lawrence running in, trying to tear Juliet away. She's like, I'm not coming. He runs off she's all sad and then she like there's all this commotion going on and she's like I better kill myself before someone else comes in and stops me and stabs herself and then everyone else immediately runs in and they're like oh no what's happened but essentially what you have is their marriage was supposed to kind of repair their family feud and now instead their deaths um, have repaired the family feud so that's essentially what's going on and in Baz Luhrmann's version You have all of that happening in the original language, except that he has completely updated the setting. So we are in a 90s (laughs) setting. We're in a city, a made-up city called Verona Beach. My understanding is they shot it 
outside of Mexico City and in and around Mexico City. Um, but it kind of looks like a mishmash of like Mexico City, a beachside town in California. It's kind of got some Miami vibes. So it's sort of got a mix of stuff going on, but it's basically like grungy city in the 90s, I would say, is the setting. <laughs> the Montagues are like surfer California dudes. <laughs> the Capulets are like, okay, this confused the heck out of me because so they gave Romeo and Juliet's dad's first names for the purpose of this movie. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote this in my notes because Romeo's dad got introduced as Ted Montague, which cracked <laughs> me up. I was like, yes, yes, Ted Montague. And then her father, Juliet's father, gets introduced as Fulgencio Capulet. And I was like, all right, Italian mob thing going on. But then Tybalt is played by John Leguizamo, who's very obviously Latino. And Claire Danes is a white woman. So I don't really know <laughs> what is going on with the Capulets, but they're like, I would say vaguely ethnic. Basically, it kind it honestly kind of reminded me of West Side Story um, where Tony and the Jets are white and then the Sharks are, you know, like Puerto Rican, except that Maria is almost always played by a white woman, which makes no sense. And that's kind of what's happening in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, the setting, it was actually originally supposed to be Miami. Okay. And then as they were filming in Mexico City, Baz and um, his production designer, Catherine Martin, who's actually also his wife in real life, they work together on everything. They just incorporated so many like Mexican influences. And then they're like, let's just create a whole other town. And have it be in California. And it's like, yep, this this all checks out um, for kind of the whirlwind of creative decisions that he seems to make. <laughs> and it, it does. I think I was reading something. So I guess I should preface real quick. Amanda told me she has um, like the special edition DVD. So I just want to confirm you watched a bunch of like the special features making of commentary. Yes. And then I went and poked around the internet. So we both kind of have (laughs) some of these production details filling in gaps for each other. But one of the other things I read is, I think when they were shooting in Mexico City, is one of the big plot points going on in Romeo and Juliet is Friar Lawrence, the need to get married, all this religious stuff going on, which in a play set in the 16th century, you're just kind of like, okay, that makes sense. Like... Yes, Juliet has to go to confession and all this stuff. But in a modern day setting, they were like, how does the religion feel authentic enough? So they're like, let's go somewhere super Catholic. Yeah. And that's why there's so much Catholic imagery. Um, They were like, we really just need to make sure that the audience understands that religion and the state are completely like one in the same in this world. So we'll just have this statue of Jesus that shows up a bunch just in case you forgot just in case you didn't know we're going to tattoo a giant cross on the back of the priest (laughs) and you will understand the vibe I feel like Father Lawrence putting on a sheer shirt 
over his giant back cross is almost a perfect snapshot of what this movie embodies. It just really is. (laughs) (laughs) Just those kind of subtle clues to really give you a glimpse into what this world is like. You take away nothing else. And I did, I wanted to talk, I think this part is really interesting, sort of the background and lore of Baz Luhrmann and his filmmaking and why he chose to make the movie this way. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about why update the setting, but keep the language. Um, And you had an interesting note about how this is the second movie in a unofficial trilogy. Yeah, the first three movies in um, Baz Luhrmann's filmography, so Strictly Ballroom, Romeo plus Juliet, and uh, Move on Rouge, are what he refers to as his Red Curtain trilogy. And so while they have no connection as far as the story goes, they're meant to celebrate all different aspects of theater. So Strictly Ballroom celebrates dance, Moulin Rouge highlights song, and then Romeo plus Juliet focuses on the poetry or the language. And so that was really why he wanted to keep to that original text to really highlight the poetry of it all. Um, so it would fit in with these three movies. And I, um, so I'll have to admit, I've seen almost all Vaz Luhrmann's movies, except for Strictly Ballroom, which I feel like is a, a glaring omission on my part. But my understanding is that Strictly Ballroom is kind of like light and happy and has a fun ending. And <laughs> Romeo plus Juliet obviously does not. And Moulin Rouge also does not (laughs) um and i've only seen strictly ballroom once and it was just it was a sweet little romantic comedy set at a ballroom dancing competition so if you if he hadn't told me that like oh no these three movies are all supposed to be together i'd be like are you sure about that because it kind of feels like you just came up with a way to tie your movies together i i can buy the second two I feel like Strictly Ballroom got retconned into the into the lore. <laughs> yes. He said, this is who I am now. Yes. He said, we need to find a way to make a box set DVD and slap a new label on it. What you got for us? <laughs> well, now he's done uh, Romeo plus Julia and Great Gatsby. So if he gets one more literary adaptation in there, we'll have another box set ready to go. Absolutely. <laughs> One other interesting thing I found, I found this really cool long form Q&A with Baz Luhrmann where he was talking about kind of why they chose to do it this way uh, with the modern setting, but the original language. And one of the things that he kind of argues multiple times, I think, in these makings of is that he's actually staying true to the source materials by having this setting. So in his mind, it's not, we did a totally new, modern, different setting, but kept the old language. It's that frenetic, chaotic violence of that modern setting actually fits really well with the original vibe and intention of the play. And he had this quote that I thought was really interesting. I just wanted to read a little part of it. Um, So he said, 
I wanted to look at the way in which Shakespeare might make a movie of one of his plays if he was a director. How would he make it? We don't know a lot about Shakespeare, but we do know he would make a movie movie. He was a player. We know about the Elizabethan stage and that he was playing for 3,000 drunken punters from the street sweeper to the Queen of England, and his competition was bear baiting and prostitution. So he was a relentless entertainer and a user of incredible devices and theatrical tricks to ultimately create something of meaning and convey a story. So I thought this was like a really interesting take. And I think some of what he's saying is not wrong. (laughs) Like, I mean, now, first of all, the Queen of England would have not been in the playhouse with the 3,000 drunk people. (laughs) However... Bear baiting would have been competition, and the only way you could survive as a theater in Elizabethan England was to bring in, you know, 2,000 patrons a day, and he was wildly popular, which is why he got to keep writing plays. So he definitely knew what the people wanted and how to entertain them, and I don't know that he would have made the movie like this. This is probably closer than like a lot of the really stuffy Shakespeare adaptations we're used to seeing because he would have wanted to make what is entertaining to his modern day audience. So yeah, and um, I listened to the the commentary of the movie and it was him, Craig Pierce, who was the screenwriter, uh, Catherine Martin, and then Don McAlpine, who was the cinematographer. And they were all just very adamant that they were like, we wanted to go against the more Victorian Shakespeare and really bring it back to its Elizabethan roots. I don't fully know that Elizabethan means the same thing to me as it does to you, but I very much appreciate the intention here. I think this mythos of Shakespeare that we've built up in the modern day as this, you know, esteemed writer of very classy plays And then you read Romeo and Juliet and literally half of it is jokes about dicks and sex. And you're like, hmm, I don't know that he's quite, he's not elevated beyond, you know, low humor or whatever. So in that regard, those, those were some of my favorite moments of those movie, this movie. Yeah, definitely. When Mercutio pulled the invitation out of his skirt, I was like, (laughs) this is perfect. Genius. (laughs) Uh, There's one other influence that I did want to talk about. So you said that you had watched this in English class when you read Romeo and Juliet. My English class watched the Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet from the 1960s, I believe. 68, yeah. I So I had that as a frame of reference, but I guess didn't really know how influential it was in terms of Romeo and Juliet adaptations. And some of the stuff that I read, people were setting up Baz's version as a direct response to Zeffirelli's version. And I didn't know if Baz had talked about that at all. I never saw anything that was like a direct reference to the Zeffirelli version. He mentioned a lot about like, club Shakespeare and wanting to go against that so I think for him it was more just the like general classical adaptations I know there was at least one critic I saw 
um, a clip of, I think it was Lisa Schwartzbaum, was talking about how, like, the Zeffirelli version was her childhood, and this, like, went direct, like, directly against her childhood, and that was why she found this so offensive. Oh, that's interesting. Like, okay, I, I guess. So she's old enough that her her formative Romeo and Juliet was Zeffirelli and not... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think for Baz, he was probably thinking of it more in terms of the, like, Kenneth Branagh adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, the more classical ones, because um, that would be more around the same time frame. I was going to say, a lot of Branagh's like Hamlet and Much Ado and stuff were coming out right around this time. Um, although I will say that Branagh and Much Ado is uh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so one of the things this movie is doing, um, I think I've used the terms now, fever dream and frenetic, which are really the best ways I can think of. If if you have never seen a Baz Luhrmann movie, just go watch a couple minutes. Go watch the first few minutes of this movie because it is one of the craziest things ever committed to film. It is insane. <laughs> and then you will get the vibe. I, I rewatched the beginning a couple times to make my spouse watch it because I was like, you must see... <laughs> What is happening right now? So it's kind of doing the Baz Luhrmann thing. But, you know, it just, ra- I mean, I think all the stuff's ratcheted up to a thousand. But this is ratcheted up to a thousand. And especially the first part of the movie is just absolutely wild. Cuts everywhere. Violent, like, things are just happening. Mercutio shows up and gets everyone on drugs, which just makes it even wilder. And then, and everyone is like, kind of just being totally over the top ridiculous uh, until the moment where Romeo and Juliet meet and then the movie just screeches to a halt and the two of them stare at each other <laughs> through an aquarium which is such a great moment <laughs> and <laughs> and hits so much harder when the movie has been so absolutely bananas up to that point but I wanted to talk just a little bit about this choice of making the movie absolute chaos and I think the parents in particular are extremely over the top and not realistic but I don't think they're supposed to be Um, and then the choice to actually ground Romeo and Juliet so that they are kind of the only ones who feel like real people I mean if you if you almost think of the movie as being from Romeo and Juliet's perspective, that can also make sense where it's like, they're the only real people in their world and everyone around them is just this insane caricature of what maybe they're perceiving them to be. I love that. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I feel like that kind of works. And I mean, the everything being so ratcheted up at the beginning, it kind of also makes it more realistic for why they are so drawn to each other, where it's like in this world of chaos, they see this is the only other person who feels real to them and who can maybe get them out of this chaotic world that they're in. And that's why they knew through that aquarium (laughs) no words no words needed to be said they were just like you you're my person i really liked 
how even though I was kind of even though I've seen this movie several times, I still got whiplash uh, watching the first part of it. But something that I thought was super duper effective is that if you're setting up the Capulets and the Montagues as bitter enemies and the prince getting so fed up with them, he's like, you do this again. I am putting you all to death. After watching the first chunk of this movie, you're like, that actually makes sense. Like, these guys are causing such absolute chaos. So the the chaos of the editing and the cutting and that it puts you into a mindset where you are like, oh my God, I cannot blame anyone who wants this to end. (laughs) People are just... (laughs) Yeah, if this is what they're doing to everyone in Verona Beach, like fracturing everyone's lives to this extent there's there's that great shot because the the opening like gas station shootout fight is just chaos and so much fun and there's this one moment where one of the montagues (laughs) is just getting repeatedly hit in the head with a purse by just this random person that you never see again it's like that must just be what it's like for the entire town they're just like just stop take your feuds and go (laughs) elsewhere i just need to get gas i'm literally just trying to get to work and (laughs) now there are police helicopters like firing on a gas station and one of the other things about romeo and juliet in this movie that i think is really interesting is that the movie takes them and their feelings seriously I guess fair-ish to be like oh they just met they're teenagers they're dumb which I mean is true like the movie does happen over or the play does happen over you know four days or whatever like (laughs) yes in real life this is not how this works but it is fiction uh but I feel like that's kind of the popular modern day critique of Romeo and Juliet is well they're meant to be ridiculous and they're dumb and that's why this play this story doesn't work and I like how this movie just really leans into it and is like no their feelings are authentic what they need and want is real and like let's take them seriously yeah they they have a true love now I may be like is that love still going to be there a week from now after things have settled down? I don't know, but that's also the story we're never going to get to see. So for at least these four days, this is the truest love that there ever was. And yeah, it's it's true to them. It is real to them. And if you kind of have that mindset that they're the POV characters, then yeah, they would be completely taken seriously. I just think that's nice for a piece of media to take a teenager's feelings seriously. (laughs) I don't think that happens very much. It really doesn't. What do you think about the believability of just how Leo and Claire are selling the relationship? I definitely believe them as being just hopelessly in love with each other. You know, I believe that Claire is playing Juliet as this kind of more, like, naive damsel in the tower, and she really sells that. Um, the The creative team in the commentary, they describe their version of, of Romeo as James Dean meets Kurt Cobain, and he is absolutely that. 
So yeah, so I was very fully invested with how they were so taken away by each other and just fell so hopelessly in love. Yeah, I thought they had really nice chemistry. And now I did the balcony scene in the pool. I remember there was one point about halfway through that scene where I was like, wow, they are making out a lot (laughs) in this scene. But you know what? Uh, Two teenagers totally taken with each other. That is what they would be doing. That, That was actually why they ended up throwing them into the pool was because they were like, at the rate this is going, we don't believe these two are not going to hook up. So we need to have there be some sort of actual obstacle and the water is going to be their obstacle. So they <laughs> fell into the pool at that point. And, and that was the reason they did that. They'd been staging that scene and it wasn't working for some reason. And then they were just like, what if we just throw them into the pool? And that was like the cool down moment that they needed. That's hilarious. <laughs> And then it worked very well. Like, Romeo had to hide from the guard and just push him underwater. And very, very effective. Yeah, I thought, I mean, Claire Danes is just really good in everything she does. Yes. And I was super impressed, especially when I read that she was, like, 17. And she delivers those lines like a boss. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I want to say she had already been nominated for an Emmy by this point. Cause I think she got nominated for my so-called life. Mm-hmm. So she was like the very like highly in demand, like serious teen actress at that time. Well, it makes sense. She, uh, she pulled it off. I thought Leo was pretty good too. Leo's pretty good in general. I, I promise I wasn't like nitpicking the whole time. There was only one line read he had that I was like, Mm, could have done a second take on that one um <laughs> after balthazar tells him juliet's dead and he says then i defy you stars and the way he said it i was like "Ooh, that was a swing and a miss yeah could have done a second pass there not, not quite <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the rest of it i thought he did pretty good though and you know i'm willing to forgive it like it's hard to deliver Shakespearean dialogue naturally and I think overall the movie does pull it off I I think so there there are definitely characters like I thought Father Lawrence so I thought Pete Postlewaite was a standout <laughs> I was like he's yes. probably performed Shakespeare before but he's one of those actors who when he's delivering the lines you're like I believe that this is just how you talk and I understand exactly what you are saying he like really hits the sweet spot of both of those things definitely so i want to talk a little bit about some of the side characters because romeo and juliet is just so full of delightful characters and this movie makes so many choices (laughs) so many choices (laughs) just simply must discuss i feel like one of the things about Romeo and Juliet and again I really appreciate this how this movie how seriously this movie takes their relationship and I think by the end it is it's done very effectively but I almost never meet anyone who likes this play who thinks like that Romeo and Juliet is their favorite character (laughs) like someone is 
always like in a side character. We just have a lot of fun characters in this play. Yeah. Our number one, of course, being Mercutio. Oh, the wonderful Harold Perrineau. We must, simply must, <laughs> talk about Mercutio <laughs> and Harold Perrineau. Yes. One of the wild things that I discovered reading up on this movie is that Christian Bale and Ewan McGregor both auditioned for this role. And I think, I don't think Christian Bale got cast, but I think he was very seriously being considered. And then they decided to go with Harold Perrineau instead. And to some degree, I was like, the Ewan McGregor thing makes sense to me because it's Ewan McGregor. And then he was then in Moulin Rouge. So then he kind of fits in the Baz verse in my, in my brain. But Christian Bale. I... I am trying to picture him in that, like, sparkly two-piece <laughs> and curly wig, and it is just breaking my brain. <laughs> like, could he pull that? Maybe in, like, another universe where Christian Bale took a very different path <laughs> in film. Maybe. Yes. Because he was in Newsies. Um, <laughs> could he have pulled off the Mercutio role? I don't think he could have. <laughs> I think they made the right choice. I would want to see Christian Bale try just because <laughs> the entertainment value, but Harold Perrineau is basically perfect. He really, really is. Just, he fully sells every single over-the-top choice to the point that, like, yeah, I completely believe this is what you would do. Yes. And one of the things, so, when I watch Shakespeare adaptations... I try to be very cognizant of the fact that no modern day movie can include all of the dialogue because that's just not, that's not how plays and movies, you know, plays work one way, movies work a different way. Totally fine. So when I was watching this, I tracked a lot of the line cuts, but didn't like write them down or anything except for when it came to Mercutio, just because everything he says is so good and I was rereading the play to just see if there was anything this movie did differently that I, you know, thought was an interesting choice or whatever. And for Mercutio, it was basically just me reading the play and being like, oh, man, that's such a good line. Why did they cut that out? I'm <laughs> <laughs> yes. like, I get why they cut it out. But man, especially in Mercutio's death scene. So you know how, I mean, obviously, very famously, if you ask for me tomorrow, you shall find me a grave man, which is, of course, a absolutely iconic thing to say uh, as you're dying. But <laughs> there are so many other things he says while he's dying that are also jokes. And I was just like, I really want to see an adaptation where someone just lets Mercutio go whole hog. Yes, just let him say everything. Yeah. I think I I think I actually referenced this when I was discussing Shakespeare in Love, so I'm just going to repeat myself because it's my one of my favorite Mercutio lines of all time is after he gets stabbed when Romeo says, "Come on, man, the hurt cannot be much." And he says, "No, no tis not so deep as a well nor so wide as a church door, but tis enough. Twill serve." And I'm like, "Man, that's such a cool thing to say." Your friend's like, it can't be that bad. And you're like, listen, bro, I'm literally dying. <laughs> I have been stabbed and I am dying. And I'm going to wax eloquently about how it feels as oh, I am dying. So good. 
And one of the things about Mercutio that I I wanted to talk about because so he dresses up as a, a drag queen for the masked ball, which I mean just fits for Mercutio's character. But I think that automatically, like having this drag queen vibe and him just in general being a flamboyant person. And then with the modern setting, I think automatically starts putting him in dialogue with the queer community in some way. And Mercutio's character, I guess, not traditionally, but like, you know, modern reinterpretations, you can really tease some of that out of Mercutio's character. Like, if you view Romeo as having like a heterosexual awakening and falling in love with women, like maybe one of the reasons Mercutio won't stop making fun of him is because he himself is like, I am not buying into heteronormativity, sir. (laughs) Like, what are you (laughs) doing? And I even saw like one comment where someone mentioned this version kind of leaning into like the homoeroticism of Mercutio. So I wanted to just, is this deliberate or is this um, them kind of accidentally doing a thing? I think it's kind of them accidentally doing a thing. So in the commentary track, they really kind of skimmed past their decision to have Mercutio be a drag queen. It was Baz and the screenwriter, Craig Pierce, um, said they wanted to highlight how Mercutio is more poetic and flamboyant, and the most flamboyant thing they could think of was a drag queen, so that's just what they went with. And so I I feel like that's a little bit of a cop-out. At least I think on their end of things, it was basically a, we made this choice because stylistically it fit with our overall feel and then other people attributed this meaning to it and we just said yeah we meant that and just took it and ran with it (laughs) so I guess even if they accidentally did a thing they didn't then come back later and go like oh no 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 yeah they didn't come back and be like oh yeah no like Mercutio totally straight like that you're good like that wasn't what he was supposed to be. They basically were just like, yeah, that actually kind of sounds like a good idea. Sounds so smart. We'll own that. We <laughs> Let's <meant> do that. that. <laughs> One of the other things I was thinking, I don't know if they mentioned this at all, but obviously in the history of Shakespearean performance, male actors dressing as women was like just, you know, normal for the Shakespearean stage. And so in some ways, having Mercutio dress in drag is almost also a callback to like original performances of plays. That fits in with their Elizabethan feel that they were going for. And you would think they could have used that as an explanation, but they did not even mention that. (laughs) (laughs) They were basically just like, we need flamboyant, so we picked a drag queen. (laughs) I I will give them partial credit i guess for that (laughs) one at some points (laughs) let's move on to some other side characters okay i want to talk about the nurse so she is also a pretty renowned comic character they they cut a lot of her dialogue for the movie as well which again makes sense because she talks a lot But part of the reason she talks a lot in the play is, like, to show 
her character and like the way her character thinks and free associates and like does all this goofy stuff. I th- I think she has more or less the same vibe in the movie with just way fewer lines, but kind of what we think about the nurse. Yeah, she definitely seems that like almost grandmotherly nanny vibe. And I feel like some of the stuff that was cut, and correct me if I'm wrong, some of the stuff I think also could have served to help them with aging down Juliet's mom. Because I think in the movie, it really highlights that there is an age gap between Lady Capulet and the nurse. And it's like, Juliet's mom, Gloria, wasn't, was she was supposed to have been right around the same age as Juliet when they got married. And so she had no idea how to like be a mother once she had this child. And so the nurse was just that mother role for Juliet and is just that person that she relies on so much more. And so I think some of what they, the choices that they made kind of helped to set up that difference between, we'll call her Gloria, since that's what they did, and the nurse. Yeah, and part of the dialogue they cut for the nurse, especially like in her kind of establishing, in that establishing scene, I got because... You know, one of the unfortunately cringe things about the original play is that Juliet is, in fact, 13 years old. And one of the nurse's big speeches is like, well, I know she's 13 and not 14 because (laughs) 11 years ago, this thing happened. And then she goes off like on this huge tangent about (laughs) the weather and her husband when he was still alive and all of this stuff. It's like, so in conclusion, yes, Juliet is 13 years old. (laughs) And I'm like, well... (laughs) Okay, like you kind of understandable. Let's excise, excise. That that all makes sense. But yeah, I also think this this explanation that you gave like made a lot of sense. I hadn't actually picked up on that when I was watching the movie. I was just kind of like, oh, like older nanny character and her mom and whatever. And then... <laughs> To some degree, it does make sense if you're like, well, if they're pushing Juliet to get married so young, it would make sense that her own mother got married so young. And again, in a setting like in the 1500s, if your family is well off, mothers are going to have nurses really raise the kids because they have other stuff that they have to do, responsibilities. And then in a modern day setting, that's a lot less common. So how do you... How do you explain that the nanny raised the kids? Yeah. Right, right. Another question I had about the nurse, and this is this is all part of what we were talking about, that the, the like racial politics of this movie um, just kind of don't make sense, is that the nurse character is Latina, which like would make sense if the rest of the family also was. But instead it's like Tybalt is... And the nurses are Tybalt and the nurse. Like, is that something? Yeah. Kind of the more the more unkind way you could look at it is they got as far as thinking, oh, we have a, a nurse character. The hired help is Latina. And that's as far as we got there. And we just decided to have Miriam Margolias do an accent because she could do that. And... 
we thought that that fit well with this vibe. Yeah, it's there are some things that I think Baz thinks about in very, very great detail and will spend time agonizing over. We, we did this exact shot in this exact way. And then when it comes to things about especially race, he kind of was just like, oh, well, that was just what I thought of and it fit. And just kind of like hand waves and doesn't really think about it much more than a white guy thinks about race at times. <laughs> that That is a really good point because one of the um, articles that I read in preparation for this was someone basically walking through, and I guess part of this was also Catherine Martin since she's production design, but basically how if you watch this movie and you just like pause and zoom and pinpoint all of the graffiti signs you see, products they're using, there are just so many Shakespeare references. It's all tucked all over the place to make the world just feel like it belongs in Shakespeare's world of plays, which was obviously just done to like the last little minute detail. And then it's amazing to me that the team who did that could also be like, I don't know, Mercutio can dress up as a drag queen and it doesn't mean anything. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They, they spent so much time thinking about the graffiti in the background that they were like, okay, but why is the nurse? What? Where are any of these people? <laughs> what is going on? I wouldn't even necessarily think about it. Like, you know, the theater itself sometimes there there's a tradition where you might cast a play and be like eh whatever you know uh taking um a note from the Cinderella where like Whoopi Goldberg is married to Vincent Garber and their son is of Asian descent and like though that kind of stuff happens in the theater and it's really no big deal because you're just like oh whatever whoever is the characters but then this movie Felt like it wasn't just, oh, random colorblind casting, but, and, and to some degree, yes, because, like, I feel like Harold Perrineau was just, like, the right fit for the role, right. but for the Capulets specifically, when they're, like, trying to set up a thing, that was where I was like, were you actually trying to set up a thing? And then it just comes across as weird. Yeah, and it would be one thing if they had just cast a... Latina act actress, and we're just like, oh, she has, she was just the best person. But Miriam Margolia is is British. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, she was a uh, Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter movies. <gasps> oh, what? <laughs> I just kind of assumed um, that they cast a Latina actress. No, in the world, so <laughs> that is. <laughs> That's weird. That was a very <laughs> deliberate choice they went with. <laughs> okay. That actually makes that way weirder even than I thought. And and almost even way worse where it was just like, really, did you just get as far as thinking the nanny had to be Latina? <laughs> and that was where the oh. train of thought stopped. They should have just let her be British lady. Right? Like, that's so weird. Oh, man. Okay. Baz, I'm so sorry, sir, but you just, you are in fact, quote unquote, problematic. Um, that's wild. Good to know. Thank you so much for this revelation. I, my mind is not going to recover. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, speaking of, you know, casting the right person for the role and, and weirdness and stuff. So let's talk about Tybalt. So John Linguizamo, we can at least very comfortably say, is in fact <laughs> a Latino actor playing a Latino character. So that part is not um, as weird. And he is fantastic too so absolutely no beef um one of my like ways i started somersaulting as i was like well fulgencio is italian but tybalt's related like you know tybalt could be biracial and there could be like all this other stuff going on is how i kind of just started and then i was like this is falling apart i don't think it actually makes sense but um let's talk about tybalt yes the way that Catherine Martin described um, her approach to him was she said, Tybalt is a bit of a dandy in addition to being a warrior. So we wanted to send up the idea of him fighting as a Spanish warrior. So he's very much like styled as if he were like a flamenco dancer. They actually brought in a professional flamenco dancer to help with some of his fight choreography because they really, really wanted to incorporate that whole vibe with his look. And they just really doubled down on that. Which is really cool. But then why aren't all of the Capulets cool flamenco dancers? Yeah. (laughs) And he totally pulls it off too. And it actually, like it does work in my mind for the Tybalt character who... One of the one of the things I always thought was interesting about his character is how he gets referred to in the text of the original play as the King of Cats. And you're like, so he's got to be like this lithe, graceful dude, like canonically. Yes. <laughs> so it really does. And then he is also kind of catty. So like, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And John Leguizamo just does a very good job of kind of exuding that like, I mean, his whole purpose is mostly just to be really angry the whole time. <laughs> but he does it in a really smoldering, interesting way that's not just like, I'm mad all the time. Yeah, definitely. I feel like there could be a whole spinoff just about Tybalt and kind of his life in this world. And I think I would watch it just because just because John Legbazamo is such a captivating presence on screen. And something I was thinking about, so when I was rereading the play, I feel like what I'm about to say, it felt kind of revelatory. And then I feel like when you say it, it sounds kind of stupid when you're like, oh, each action in each scene leads to the action in the next scene, which is like how a story works. (laughs) But it, it struck me because Tybalt is kind of the reason the play turns into a tragedy. Because, like, it's him getting involved in the fight at the beginning that, like, sets off the whole thing that comes up with this, like, very strict ultimatum. So it sets these very high stakes. And then he's the one who notices that Romeo is at the party when he's not supposed to be and wants to fight him. And Lord Capulet's like, man, just the prince just told us he's gonna, he's going to put us all to death. Like, let it go. Just chill. And... <laughs> He's like, absolutely not. And so the next day he issues that duel uh, or whatever the heck, that threat to Romeo. And Romeo won't fight him and Mercutio's all pissed off. And he's like, sure, I'll fight and 
kill Mercutio sounds great. I guess I intellectually knew like all of those things happened for those reasons, but it really struck me this time around how all of those things really led into each other and how kind of pivotal his character is in making all of those things happen. And if someone had been able to successfully diffuse Tybalt like 10%, maybe a lot of the plot of the play would have never happened. Yeah. It, like, if someone had just distracted Tybalt. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting. And Tybalt doesn't get a lot of attention, maybe, because he's just, like, not that... He doesn't have a lot of fun lines, even though he's a very important character. But in this movie, I think kind of the combination of having the right actor and then, like, kind of giving him that flair lets him do more. Definitely. And also, um, the idea of a relationship between Lady Capulet and Tybalt. <laughs> this confused the hell out of me because I think that, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the two of them share an open mouth kiss. So they do. And I was like, is this like a everyone's on drugs at the party or like a, a thing? So... You could read it either way because it is in the like, in the shot where it's Romeo is just fully tripping out and everything is just like swirling around him. You've got Juliet's dad like dancing with his toga and is like lifting up his toga and kicking and everything. And so it's from Romeo's perspective that the Tibble Lady Capulet kiss happens so maybe you could be like it didn't actually happen but I went back and was re-watching some of this and I feel like you could actually build a case that Tybalt and Lady Capulet were a thing so in the commentary they really talked about how they wanted Juliet's mom to have essentially been this trophy wife she was pretty much forced into marriage when she was around Juliet's age. So I can see where maybe she was closer in age to Tybalt than she was to her husband. And so maybe she like latched on to Tybalt and they started up an affair. And after Tybalt dies, it's really Juliet's mom who has all of the angriest lines and like, screaming about how Romeo needs to be found and punished. And she's the one who really is having this huge meltdown over Tibble's death. Do I feel that it was something entirely created for this adaptation? And maybe I am also writing fan fiction of it in my head. <laughs> yes. But that doesn't mean there's not something to it. I feel like in the context of this movie, it totally makes sense. Also, to some degree, any... At some, at some point, any uh, investigation of Shakespeare all becomes academics writing fan fiction anyway. So I, think <laughs> yes. I can definitely see that. I, uh, I've i never seen anything like that before. Like, I kind of always assumed, oh, she's mad because her nephew died, which could also be a thing. <laughs> you know, maybe it's her, her brother's son. And so she's like, well, literally, that makes me very sad. I think in the case of this movie, it does make some sense. When I was rereading the play, I was kind of focusing on 
some of this stuff with Juliet's parents because I was trying to kind of figure out the scene where her dad is basically like, if you don't marry Paris, I'm kicking you out of the house and never talking to you ever again. And I was like, this seems so extreme and out of nowhere. So I was kind of trying to see what was in the play that would lead to this. And honestly, it feels kind of (laughs) random in the play too. He does, he does say several times that he just, he thinks Juliet's too upset, basically. So he really wants this to happen to snap her out of it. But I feel like snapping her out of it, it, then screaming at her and threatening her is not um, a very good tactic to help somebody (laughs) deal with their grief. Yeah. But he had this line, they cut it out of the movie, but he basically, so her mom's trying to you know say oh you can marry Paris and it's gonna be great and she's like I don't really want to do that and then her dad comes in and he's like are you excited to marry Paris and she's like no (laughs) and her dad basically says to her showing a little bit of grief is good and like proves that you're respectable showing too much grief is actually suspect and is like unseemly So there's something going on. I don't know if this is like a historical thing, like a a family of a certain rank can't be, I I don't, or if it's just Shakespeare doing a thing, (laughs) giving her dad a super rude line to say, but I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't caught that or I hadn't remembered it from previous reads of the play. He's basically like, you're grieving too much. (laughs) And that is suspect. (laughs) So we need to do something to fix that. I don't know why marrying Paris in two days is the correct solution. But and and it and another thing I thought was really weird about that decision is earlier in the play when Paris and Lord Capulet are very first talking, and and Capulet says something like, "Well, why don't we like wait a year or two? And Paris is like, oh, come on. Yeah, girls are getting married this young all the time. And then Capulet says something to the effect of basically like, okay, I'm going to give my consent for this to move forward. But that's only half of the picture. And you have to get Juliet's too. Or else like my consent doesn't matter. I was like, wow, that's like a surprisingly cool thing for that kind of character to say. And then two days later, he's like, you marry him or I'll never talk to you ever again. It's like, <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, tonally, he is all over the place. And I don't think that's like necessarily the fault of the adaptation or the actor. It might just be like a issue with the, the text. Yeah. But it did seem kind of out of nowhere. Just like all of a sudden everyone's screaming at her. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you could say that that helps show part of why Juliet may be so desperate to flee her home life that she is willing to have married this guy that she just met where you know going back to that he's her raft out of the he's her life raft out of the chaos so and Mm -hmm. that's her perspective on the chaos when I was inspecting that scene in the original play trying to figure out what's going on I really think you know her relationship with her parents isn't 
bad earlier in the play, but it's not like amazing. I think the really the biggest betrayal of the scene is the nurse because she's like, okay, my parents are not going to help me. Here's this like woman who raised me and has been helping me throughout the whole play do all this other stuff. And she's like, what am I going to do? And she's like, well, you should probably just marry Paris. And it's very practical advice. I don't blame her for giving it. Um, But that kind of, to me, felt like the turning point where she was like, okay, it's now going to (laughs) be extreme. Now we're going to take this potion that maybe isn't going to kill me, but it's going to seem like it. I mean, she was going to kill herself yeah. if she didn't get the potion, so exactly. it doesn't seem like that much of a stretch to her. But one of one of the things about this movie that I think is very effective, like I said, so the, the chaos at the beginning, understanding what the feud is doing to the city at large, and then like we were talking about what it's doing to Romeo and Juliet specifically. So even though they're they're not making very good choices you can really understand why in this adaptation I never feel like Juliet reaching for these really weird desperate wild solutions ever feels like oh she's just being a dumb teenager I'm like I can totally get why someone would feel like they have to do this yeah I mean she's it's either death or being trapped in marriage with someone she doesn't love, that she doesn't know, or, you know, being cast out of her family entirely. Like, these are all just terrible choices. And so, yeah, it, it makes sense why she does the things that she does. And poor Paris. I mean, he doesn't really seem like that bad of a guy, but... He is, like, one of the dumbest human beings alive, so... Oh my gosh, poor Dave Paris. <laughs> Just shows up as the astronaut at the party. <laughs> yes. Okay, I was actually going to ask you, any explanation for why he is an astronaut? Yes, so they wanted to have all of the costumes highlight different aspects of their characters. So we have Juliet as the angel... Romeo is the knight in shining armor. Um, and they were like, and Paris just seemed like a guy who'd show up as an astronaut. So we put him in an astronaut costume. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was just kind of bland and boring. So that's what we went with. I was wondering about that because I, def- I totally got the symbolism of like Romeo and Juliet. And then the mom kind of doing the Cleopatra thing like made sense. And then like we've already discussed Mercutio made sense. And but I was like, Paris as an astronaut. I, I this is think, not making sense to me. <laughs> I think they put about as much thought of him into him being the astronaut as they did with naming him Dave. They were just like, give me a boring thing. Dave, astronaut, got it. Moving on. <laughs> that just makes me feel bad for Paul Rudd because then they're just like, oh, who's like a ben- boring generic man? I know, Paul Rudd. <laughs> exactly. Poor Paul Rudd. He is not. No. Now he's given absolutely nothing to do. Um, My favorite scene with Paris is at the party when he like dances with Juliet. And then the stuff's coming down from the ceiling and he keeps like turning around and smiling at her. And she's like so obviously uninterested in talking to this other man. And he just has absolutely no awareness whatsoever. No, he, I mean, he plays it like he is just the biggest weeb in the world and 
you know what? Yeah, that's kind of what he is in this movie. He's just a giant dweeb. The missing scene that I wish Shakespeare would have written is Mercutio and Paris having an interaction, since apparently they were cousins. Right. Oh my goodness. What are those family dinners like? (laughs) I must know. Okay, I did want to talk a little bit about the ending because one of the things that I had not remembered about this movie that I thought was really interesting is that they actually have Juliet wake up before Romeo dies. And like I mentioned in the original play, it's Romeo dies, Juliet wakes up, Father Lawrence shows up, a whole bunch of stuff happens he runs off and then she kills herself. And in the movie, she's like waking up as he's basically giving his death speech and like misses touching his arm by a split second, basically. And so his dying lines are spoken to her as she's awake, which I found like a very interesting. That was that was really interesting. I actually really like it. I think it highlights the impulsivity of their actions that just even a split second of difference, it would have changed everything. And, you know, in in the play, they each go to their death thinking that their lover has already died. And in this, there's just that just little quick second where they both realize like, oh, crap we could have been together but it's too late for this now like our choices have been made and there's no coming back from it now and so i think it almost makes it even more tragic as you go into the ending and in some regard it's almost i don't know romeo gets to see juliet alive before he dies (laughs) is that like does that make his death just a little happier i don't know or maybe he's just like, oh, God, I'm so stupid. <laughs> I had added in, like, one more, like, poetic turn of phrase to delay uh, in drinking this. We would have been fine. If he had just sneezed, like, <laughs> yes. they would still be alive and Absolutely. happy today. Yeah. I also thought that choice and cutting out the, like, Lawrence interlude where he runs in because in the original plot when his message doesn't get to Romeo his first thought is not oh Romeo's gonna think she's dead and come back and kill himself and he's just like oh Romeo's gonna have no clue he's gonna be chilling in Mantua Juliet's gonna wake up I need to get her and then find some way to find some other way to like sneak her out so he shows up to try to carry that out unaware that Romeo (laughs) heard the news and came and all this happened but then he does not stick to his guns and get Juliet out of there he's like there's something going on we're like we got to get out of here we got to get out of here and Juliet's like no and he's like well I'm getting out of here so he (laughs) runs off but he basically has a speech after this goes down because the prince shows up and he's like okay what happened and he kind of takes a lot of the blame for it and I think to some degree, the play is like, yes, Father Lawrence, in fact, did not do a very good job here <laughs> and could have prevented some of this from happening. So it's not entirely just 
all on Romeo and Juliet, which I think is kind of a commentary from the original text, maybe, that there are kind of these other forces at play. Like, I get I get the want to, to take it out because it does interrupt, like, the <laughs> one dies and then the other dies thing. Um, kind of takes some of that focus on them away, but it does sort of change the, uh, some of the intent almost, I feel like. Yeah, it takes the, like, the onus of responsibility off of Romeo and Juliet. It was like, really, like, Father Lawrence could have just kind of helped them leave town together instead of these <laughs> wacky schemes. So, so yeah, because... It really comes down to it where it's like, you, you could have just helped her get to Mantua. Why is Fancy Poison plan A? <laughs> <laughs> the great question to ask. I should know this because I literally just watched the movie, but now I'm confused because I read the play directly afterwards. So in the play, at least, when they're kind of unfolding everything that went down, they finally figure out like, okay... They were married. Romeo thought, blah, blah, blah. Like, we, we got it. Um, and then the prince basically delivers this pretty withering speech where he's essentially like, this is really your guys' fault. And they're like, yeah, it's, yeah, that was, that was our, that was our, our bad. And the father Lawrence screw up being more apparent in that version, I think kind of helps drive home that point where like, yeah, the teens were acting impulsively. But ultimately, like, the grown-ups are the ones you gave them the <laughs> who tools to here. act impulsively. Yes. It's very much just like, in the movie, it's basically just like they all arrive at the church just moments after this has happened. And just, like, barely miss both of them being alive. And, and the prince, the police chief, basically, is just ready to go with almost like he knew this was going to happen like he had his speech ready to go like i knew we were gonna come here and find these two dead kids and it's all y'all's fault okay so at least the prince gets to deliver his um Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's him and then it goes back to the the tv yeah the news anchor like does the final part of the um epilogue that might not be the right word. It is. So in the play, the prince is the one who says it. But yeah, they kind of use it as like a little epilogue yeah. in the in the movie version. Yeah. I'm I again, I'm going to say something like I said earlier that feels kind of revelatory even though it's just like a dumb observation. <laughs> but I and again, I think it's part of just how Shakespeare is often thought of in our minds as what he is and then sometimes when I read his plays I'm like he's just a good playwright which duh I guess that's why we're still reading the play so many hundreds of years later which is why it feels dumb to say but you're like really the stakes are high across the board and he keeps introducing stuff that's forcing people to act before they have a chance to think through it and so you get to the end, it's not kind of that modern critique of like, Romeo and Juliet were stupid and they weren't actually in love and they didn't need to do this. You're like, well, actually, 
<laughs> here's all of the things that were going on around them and the pressures and everyone's being threatened with death no matter where they turn from like every different quarter and in that way it's actually super effective dramatic yeah, writing it is so i guess newsflash shakespeare knows how to write a play right <laughs> but i just feel the need to say it because i think sometimes you can forget that he knows how to plot and structure something um and when you just look at it from that perspective it's like ah yes this is why <laughs> this is why we still perform this that makes sense now and like as modern audiences we can sit there and have that lens of well, they were dumb teenagers. But it's like, yeah, because we know how the story is going to end. They haven't seen Romeo and Juliet. They don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> this is just their life. It's like when you're watching the characters in a horror movie and you're like, come on. <laughs> it's like, I would never <laughs> don't do Don't you that. know not to do that? It's like, well, no, don't, they don't. They're in a horror <laughs> Don't you know you're in a horror movie? <laughs> don't you know you're in a tragic love story? Right. It's probably fairly apparent from our conversation. Both of us think that this movie works and that it is enjoyable. I would caution anyone who does not like Baz Luhrmann to not watch the movie because it is extremely Baz Luhrmann. And I guess if you grew up with the Franco Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet, just like be careful. Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> so maybe not so much a really recommendation of whether you should or should not watch it. But one thing I was curious about is I think the movie still really works. I really enjoyed watching it. Like I said, now that I've read a ton of stuff about it, I think I'm going to go back and watch it again uh, to kind of uncover some of that stuff. But one of the lingering questions I kind of had is now that it has been 20 plus years later and Baz Luhrmann has made other movies that I've seen where he's kind of doing the same thing. I was curious to know your thoughts on whether you think the fact that he kind of does the same thing for his other movies for you takes away anything he did for this one. Like, does it make his choices feel less deliberate because he was just like, it also works for the great Gatsby. (laughs) I feel like there are lots of directors that you could say, well, they do the same thing in every movie. And so it's kind of just like, that's just kind of a mark of him as a director. We're like, I, I know anytime I watch a Tarantino movie, there's always going to be like lots of violence and there's always going to be quippy dialogue and different things like that. And, you know, Greta Gerwig movies are always going to have some sort of feminist monologue at some point and it's just kind of a mark of them and I don't think that necessarily takes away from its effectiveness throughout multiple movies it's more of just a it's it's a trademark of Baz's style and it's what makes it feel like a Baz movie Yeah, so I don't think it necessarily loses its effectiveness for me, but I can see where someone who doesn't love him is like, come on, this again? More of this. (laughs) I will say that, because it just struck me as I was watching this movie and I was like, wow, Baz Luhrmann is really doing the Baz Luhrmann thing, which I tend to enjoy how absolutely 
crazy it is. But it didn't... I thought it was interesting when they just talked about like the deliberateness of making this movie when I was like, you kind of did that for your other movies too. It doesn't really make this one less enjoyable, but it does make me give him this side eye <laughs> a little bit. But I do think that this movie is a particularly good example of it working. Whereas I would say hit that approach doesn't necessarily work as well in some of his other movies. His recent Elvis, which I was like, there are choices. This is kind of a hot mess. Yeah. <laughs> but then it surprised me to go back and watch Romeo plus Juliet and be like, oh, but here he did it in a way that doesn't feel like. <laughs> it doesn't feel insane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh. So maybe it's more of an indictment on his more recent efforts. Well, and, um, and the interesting thing, when you actually look at his filmography, in 30 years, he has only made six movies. And I really think his first three, his Red Curtain trilogy, I think are his strongest ones. And I think like after he got through with that trilogy, it was a lot of just like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. In his later movies, it's a lot of, okay, this worked before, so we're going to try it again. And I'm going to give you a reason as to why I'm doing it. And maybe I thought of the stylistic choice before I thought of the reasoning for it, but I'm going to make it sound like the reasoning came first and I landed on the stylistic choice as a result of this. And his later movies, like being somewhat of messes, doesn't detract from the enjoyment of the of those first ones. I would um, agree that I still love Moulin Rouge very, very deeply. Yeah, it's a great one. <laughs> it is good. And this one's very good, too. I think he should maybe just try to pull out another absolutely wild Shakespeare adaptation and see what it does for him. Yes, I would love that. I want to see Baz Luhrmann's Hamlet. Like, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> or like a comedy. I feel like his Twelfth Night would be the weirdest thing you would ever see. Um, yes. I'd be very intrigued to know what he would do. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> that about covers it. Thank you so, so much for joining me. It has been a delight. And I'm really excited to learn that you are a Shakespeare adaptation fan in general because that means I can invite you back for other movies absolutely uh any any parting thoughts no this is just this has been a delight to get to really dig into this from a more academic standpoint I think really just kind of heightened my overall love of this movie I've said it on the show before and I will say it again that um, one of my favorite things about Shakespeare is like once you study it, all of a sudden it unlocks the new stuff. And I honestly and truly did not expect that to happen with this movie. I was like, I love this weird movie. And that is that. And then I started reading this stuff and I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I do enjoy it more now. So... Thank you for um, unlocking that discovery for me. Of course. (laughs) Happy to do it. And that is the end of our episode. 
Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And thanks again to Amanda for joining me. We had so much more to say about this movie, but we had already talked for over two hours at this point and decided that maybe people didn't want to listen to a short audiobook's worth of conversation about Romeo plus Juliet. But if you do, we are happy to go back and record even more bonus content for you. As it turns out, there's a lot to say about this movie. If you would like to find me and drop me a note with any suggestions for future adaptations, episodes, or anything else, you can find me on the internet at somethingshakespeare.com or send me an email to somethingshakespearepod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at somethingshakespearepod. Our delightful podcast art was designed and illustrated by Haley Branson, who I love forever for making that for me. And you can find her on Instagram at hbranana. And the intro and outro music, as always, is performed by Joe's DVG on the lute and is an excerpt from the piece Midnight by Elizabethan composer John Dowland. It's the end of the year, but not the end of the podcast. And Somehow all of us will muddle through into 2024 and try to remember how to be people again. And I should be back hopefully in two weeks. When will that be exactly? Not 100%. Sometime in the wind or rain or snow or cold or freezing sleet. Maybe when the battles lost or won. But regardless of the weather and the state of the battle, the next episode will drop squarely in the middle of the hurly-burly. Because as we all know, the hurly-burlies never done. Thanks, everyone.